Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. I hope everyone is doing fantastic, all of those listeners out there. And most importantly, how are you? <laughs> I am doing well, thank uh, thank you, Lance. I really appreciate uh, when you ask me um, at the beginning, after we've already <laughs> spoken <laughs> during the day. Well, I don't get a true sense of how you are until we record intros. It's true, and I really I feel like I don't actually really consider an honest answer until that moment. So uh, yeah. I am I am doing well. Uh, thank you very much for asking, and I hope everyone out there is doing well too. I'll keep asking too. <laughs> Always remember me. <laughs> Always remember me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Lance, in this episode, we have a real interesting fellow. We speak to a friend, a journalist, a fellow podcaster. His name is James McMahon, and I think this is his third appearance on the Crawl Space Airwaves from across the pond. We love him. He is just a wealth of knowledge and a wealth of insight, but anytime he'll send a message saying, fancy a rant... You sort of have to clear your calendar for for the day and just go go into it. Um, there's no like topic that you should anticipate to stay on for too long because you do meander a bit. But all the all the roads that you go down with James are worth it, and there's some there's some wonderful scenery along the way, including this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And James has a lot going on. He has a podcast called Shame. That's really interesting and really excellent. He's really natural um, behind the mic, which is uh, pretty cool because he's a writer as well, um, and I think really by trade. But um, we speak with him about the disappearance of Andrew Gosden, who he has covered pretty extensively with his writing. James has been covering the disappearance of Andrew Gosden for a long time. Andrew Gosden disappeared on September 14th of 2007. He was only 14 years old, so he's been missing for over 14 years. And James has communicated with the family, which we get into a little bit here, just how his relationship with the family has developed and where that goes is in terms of like, I don't want to say like the responsibility of someone like James or somebody looking into a disappearance, but I guess you can say, you know, we do get into that a little bit. You know, what is, where is the line uh, when you're not like an official investigator on a case? And again, his point of view, we value so much because he is from a different culture, which is similar to our culture, but there are these subtle differences that I feel are important to identify. All right. I hope you enjoy this interview. And Lance, we are going to CrimeCon in April next month. Holy moly, this is going to be fun. I know. I cannot wait to finally see people. I sound like a goddamn broken record when I say this, but I cannot wait to hang out with all of the uh, all of the the peers that that and our friends and everybody that we've just been, you know, looking at a Zoom screen, uh, just finally seeing people in person. Las Vegas, April 29th, 30th, May 1st. That is uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And if you're on the fence and you need a little push to tip you over to the other side of the fence where the grass is definitely greener, you can use code CRAWLSPACE upon checkout, and that's 10% off your standard badge for CrimeCon 2022 in Las Vegas, Nevada. And we are very excited to be there, represented by our new partners in the podcast industry. They help with our ad sales. They help with our brand management, Glassbox Media fantastic people they truly rock and they have an area that's going to be reserved there on podcast row so you can swing by check out 
us and check out all of the shows that they have in their network and, and meet the guys. Meet the folks that are from Glassbox, and you never know. You never know. You might convert over to the dark side. And Lance, we have a new subscription service that we need to tell our audience about. It is just getting unfurled here. And uh, so we have a link. You can check it out. It's in the show notes. It's crawlspace.supportingcast.fm. And this is going to take place of our old Patreon page, Lance. And we are going to keep this loaded with bonus content. Right. And this also goes to the Glassbox relationship. We were very limited with what we could do time-wise and just resource-wise when we were on Patreon. It's nothing about Patreon that's making us switch over. It's just the subservice that's on supporting cast is more along the lines of what we need. And we've been working with Glassbox to really fine-tune all of the content that will be posted there. So it's worth it for you guys when you do transition from Patreon over to supporting cast. You're going to get so much more of what we really want to give you behind the curtain. You know, that look behind the curtain, we want to make sure it's worth it for you. And we already have stuff lined up. And and it's oh yeah, it, it stuff is lined up. It's it's informative. It's provocative. It's hilarious, and we're super excited about it. That's right. You're gonna get the episodes ad free, and then there's bonus content. We have our old Patreon episodes are all uploaded up there, Lance. They're all locked and loaded. We've got the Crime and Culture Audio. This is a live show we do every other Tuesday night. The only place you can get strictly the audio product of that is here on this subscription service. And we're going to do Ask Us Anythings every month for the $10 tier. So check it out at crawlspace.supportingcast.fm. Thanks a lot for listening. Please follow us on social media at Crawlspace Podcast or Crawlspace Pod. I thought I thought that maybe we could uh, discuss some uh, vaccine misinformation. That seems to be the best way to. Uh, see, that seems to be the best way to get publicity for your podcast at the moment. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Let's, get some no, get some Joe Rogan sponsorships. Yeah, let's let's, let's not do that. Um, let's not. <laughs> I, I, I'd like it to be known that my official line is: um, you should probably get the vaccine. That's my view. There you go. There you go. Yeah, I don't. I don't like telling people what to do, but uh, if you wanted my advice, then uh, I would get a vaccine. Yeah. Have you? Uh, have you guys had it? Yeah. Oh, COVID or yeah. the vaccine? Uh, both. Both. I've had both. Yes. I haven't been officially diagnosed with it, but thinking back on some times when I've been sick, especially early on, I don't remember feeling like that before. So I'm going to say yes. I got the vaccine and the booster, and yes, I probably got COVID. At least yeah. probably twice, I think. Yeah, I mean, me and my wife got it. Yeah, me and my wife got uh, we we boosted we boosted to the gills. Um, but <laughs> yeah, we got it end of last year, and uh, there was a few times where I thought if I wasn't vaccinated, I'd be in some I'd be in some trouble right now. Uh, it was pretty it was pretty grim, you know. But wow, I don't, I don't know. It's a weird one, you know, because I'm I'm not like. I'm a bit of a Rogan apologist, you know, like uh, I, I don't really want to be 
I'm sort of in a weird place in my life where it's like I'm I'm very liberal, especially about sort of like social liberties. You know, I'm very into people living their lives the way they want to live it, and but also like my politics are pretty left wing. But I, I I do find the call to shut Rogan down a bit weird, if I'm being honest. Um, I don't think it says a lot about our belief in the intelligence and critical thinking of our fellow man. Um, I don't know. There we are. It's a weird world, isn't it? Don't make any sense to me anymore. It is. Uh, it is. That is one way to put it. It's a weird world. It's a weird world <laughs> where you can, you can have people who have spent five decades researching science and and uh, and viruses. And no one takes them seriously. They'd rather take a parasite drug instead of a vaccine that's been developed like over the course of generations. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I totally, I totally agree with you. I guess I'm a bit more of the thinking though, as well, though, that I just think banning things is bad. You know, I just think shutting things down is bad. I think that, you know, things that we thought were fact yesterday aren't fact tomorrow. I just, I don't really understand how my side like the liberal side of the conversation has got so has seemingly got such a hard on for authoritarianism that just wants to silence people and shut people down that, that really that really confuses me and i actually think it obscures the it destroys trust in the i don't know what it's like in the states i mean i, I know to a degree but you know in the uk like there's been such catastrophic handling of covid you know at the present moment Prime Minister may or may not be inching towards the door because the actions of his party just were so disrespectful when people were making sacrifices during this extraordinary time. And, like, I just want sensible people to be having sensible conversations again, and that doesn't necessarily tie with, like, the the uh, criteria for being invited on Joe Rogan's podcast, but I, I can understand why the distrust of government in the UK has led people to thinking that there is i mean a conspiracy comes from dis from disinformation and a lack of trust doesn't it yeah i think so mm -hmm. yeah and and fear so it's it's all part of like you know the lack of trust and the disinformation is all generated uh and i guess used or the the fear of the community is being like infiltrated you know everyone's got some sort of fear about something that's going on in their community, whether it's something out of their control, or maybe they didn't realize that they could control it, but you put somebody in power who manipulates that fear. And then, you know, you can tell them anything. You can do yeah. any any amount of disinformation that, that you can get away with. Yeah, I've always tried to be one of those journalists as well that has been like, you know, if someone is misunderstood or if someone is dogpiled on or they're quote unquote misunderstood, then I always kind of want to understand what that's about rather than sort of vilify them. It's like a pretty exhausting way to be, if I'm being honest, like, because I think life can be so fast and so <sighs> complex that it's easier to have like binary judgments of people. And I, I went to do a piece for Vice a couple of years ago at a protest, like an anti, like a, God, I don't even know how to summarise it. I think it was called a Freedom March, but it was like a load of cranks talking about how COVID was a, a, you know, a creation of the New World Order and it was the Great Reset. And it was just everything they were saying was nonsense. And there was some pretty nefarious types, racists, white supremacists, so on, like, hanging around this protest you know they were very much on the fringes of it and 
I obviously wrote the piece and said that these people were talking nonsense, but I'm super interested in kind of what leads people to that place as well and sort of trying not to take their humanity away from them. And But anyway, we've got we've gone in heavy, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, we have. We have. We barely... We, I mean, we didn't even intro the episode. We just got right into it. Welcome to the show. <laughs> I, I I love it. Uh, Tim and I were just texting, and I and I asked him, "I'm like, are we are we rolling? Is this the interview?" And then he was like, "Yep, this is it. <laughs> Happens every <laughs> you know, time. It's all good." Do you know what it is a bit like when, when I do my podcasts? I uh, yeah, I don't really do a sort of uh, "Hey, how you doing?" because I, I do that all in sort of post. But there's just been so many times that I've interviewed people, and the best things have said have happened before the tapes got rolling. Um, I'm not saying that's me in this case but it's never I, happened on our show everything the best moments have always been rolling and we save the gold for when we roll so so i interviewed uh francis ford coppola about a year and a half ago and i'm a big fan of his films and he said something i was i used to uh i used to work in a different room in the house and it wasn't very well illuminated and my head was shrouded in darkness and he said something to me like um he said something like to me, like I won't do the accent, but he said something to me like, you know, you, you remind me of Marlon Brando in the Go- in um, Apocalypse Now, That's and awesome. uh, I was like, why, why did I not press record? Do you know, like that's that's a moment that you're gonna to have to believe me whether it happened or not believe me because I don't have any uh, any any evidence <laughs> that it did. You know. Wait, so why why did you remind him of Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now? Well, because, I mean, you know, spoilers, you know, it's a very old film, but just in case you've never watched it before, he is the uh, the deranged uh, colonel that Martin Sheen is sent in to retrieve or find out what happened to him. And he's, uh, when you first meet him, he's like sat in his chair, like in the shadows. And, uh, <laughs> and obviously because I'm fabulously <laughs> handsome as well. Yes. Yes. And, and a fantastic actor. Yes, of course. Acting is weird, though, isn't it? I can't. I can't mm. really. I, I fundamentally distrust actors. Whenever an actor has an opinion on anything, I'm always like, yeah, you kind of pay to lie. But well, I feel like some actors can struggle with their own identity because they yeah. play other people for a living. You know, they get into other people's heads. Like, who's to say who they are? You know, at a certain point, and you know, obviously they they realize it. I think as they go, but. There's definitely a certain point there where you don't know who you are, I think, as an actor. And that's probably when they're the best, to be honest. Yeah, no, d- definitely. I, I do feel like, you know, I'm a pretty creative person. And I like doing lots of creative things, making music and, uh, you know, obviously writing, which is how I apply my trade. And and I draw and make cartoons and things like that. But the one thing that I just know that I couldn't do is act. Like, I've sort of occasionally mucked about with the idea of... I don't know, I've sort of like written scripts and stuff and sort of mucked about kind of, you know, trying to perform lines and what's not. And I just feel stupid. Like it's the, it's the one thing that like when people do, you know, when I watch a movie and someone sort of inhabits a role where I'm like, God, that is like alchemy. It's amazing. But the other thing I will say is someone who has interviewed a lot of actors, they are like almost with no exception, extremely boring because... <laughs> Because it's like an art form where you sort of don't... I mean, if there's any actors listening to this, then I'm really sorry and 
you may be the exception to the rule, but, you know, literally pretending to be someone else, I don't really know. That's got to do something to your soul, I think, you know, like you spend such a long time not being yourself. um... Yeah, and then you have a bunch of people that just laud all of this admiration on you. So not only do you not feel like yourself, but everyone loves you for the most part, or they attack you like you're the center of attention. That's going to be a weird juxtaposition, I guess. Like, (laughs) how do you, how, how do you deal with fame? First of all, and then how, how do you deal with it when, you don't, when you're when you not confident in yourself? Yeah, no, it's wild, you know. It's, it's that thing as well where you, uh, you know, whenever, I don't know, like, you know, I'm a fan of stuff and, like, when I watch shows and there's a character that I, that matters to me and, and then you meet them and you're kind of like, oh, you're not that person, are you? And that's o- obvious, you know. I mean, that shouldn't be, come as any surprise, but... Yeah, yeah. I just have a quick story. It's so funny that you have a story about Francis Ford Coppola involving light. And I also have a story about Francis Ford Coppola involving light. He he went to this unveiling of, I guess, one of his new wines. This was probably 20 years ago, uh, his, right. his Coppola brand of wines. And he was releasing, I think it was like a rosé, but it was named uh, Sophia. And it was the, the new wine. And somewhere along the lines um, myself and someone else got the gig to, uh, to shoot it, to, to, you know, roll camera on it. And there was just one camera. So this other guy wanted to use it. And I was like, that's fine. So this other guy's shooting it and I'm just kind of like helping out and Francis Ford Coppola is on stage. And as he goes to start speaking, they shut the blinds behind him. And the guy operating the camera didn't know what to do when that happened because everything got all blacked out. And he, he didn't like, he couldn't figure out like the, the F stops or whatever to bring the light up. And what we shot was just this like very moody, dark silhouette of, of a scene. And then you couldn't really see Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> what are the chances? What not, not, are... not, a, not as good as your story, but weird. No, 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 no. What, what, what are the chances? What are the chances? Um, I love the fact that the, uh, title of this, uh, of the zoom link you sent me was James rant. I thought I was really because because I messaged you and I was like, "Hey, can I come and have a natter?" Because I really want to have a rant, which I, I've probably oversold a little bit. But um, <laughs> I, I love yeah. the fact, I love the title of it. You know. <laughs> well, what, what, tell us about this rant. What uh, I feel like uh, I need to know about this rant. Well, you know, obviously I've had a natter to you guys on the show before, and I've quite often talked about Andrew Gosden, which is uh, you know, which is kind of like my case really you know it's like you know for the benefit of anyone who hasn't heard me talk about this before he was a 14 year old kid that on september 14th 2007 went missing in london he came from doncaster he got on a train in doncaster and got off at king's cross i live in london i'm from doncaster he was like a little uh a little i guess what you'd call in the uk a bit of a mini mosher you know kind of like a young rock fan um i was a, a young rock music obsessive uh, you know, he's wearing a Slipknot T-shirt when he goes missing. I used to work for a rock magazine that I know that he read, you know, and would tear out pages of and put on the walls in his bedroom. And, you know, I've written about him and that case, and I've interviewed his father, Kevin, and I, I think anyone who's interested in, in, in true crime and consumes true crime media has, like, their case, you know. I mean, I know you guys, you know, have or had. It's been interesting, like, I, I really did feel... You know, like I make podcasts and stuff, and I, I never, I, I maybe occasionally thought I might do something on Andrew, but it, as a sto- as a story goes, as what we know goes, it's like a really perplexing mystery. Um, 
you know, there's all the, it's almost a bit like kind of Mora in a sense, you know, and you're like, well, you know, he took some, he took some money out of his bank account, but he left some money in his bedroom. He bought a one-way ticket, but he didn't seemingly go prepared as if he was running away from home. Uh, you know, he had a PSP charge. He had a PSP, you know, the old kind of PlayStation handheld consoles, but he didn't have his charger with him. He didn't take a coat. So you know, there's lots of like, what, you know, what was all that about? But really, after he gets off the train in King's Cross in London, that's it. Like, there's a few alleged sightings. One of them seems to be credible. That was in um, the Pizza Hut on Oxford Street, which is about a 15 minute walk from King's Cross if you're walking briskly. Um, and a few sightings that have never been confirmed beyond that. But really, it's like from the moment he gets out of the station, and the, CC- the CCTV is never like retrieved, it's taped over. He just vanishes into thin air, seemingly. And then just before Christmas, so actually, yeah, before I say that, like, you know, I do that thing of um, I check in with his dad and see how his dad's doing. I see how the family's doing from time to time. And when I can't sleep, uh, it's always the Reddit, the subreddit that I'll go to. And there are literally people on there clutching at straws or discussing the same theories over and over again because it's just nothing new. And then just before Christmas, uh, there was a couple of arrests. Uh, I believe that it was on suspicion of human trafficking and one of them had possession of child pornography. Uh, in relation to to Andrew, um, and that, that's the police released a statement, the Met Police released a statement in January and then quantified it with, you know, their investigation, they didn't think there would be news between, for anything between six months and a year. And it's totally ignited the Reddit again. Uh, the the subreddit and it just sort of um, I've been thinking quite a lot about true crime recently about what good we do whether that's like people who create content around true crime or people who are interested in it and I think that you know the obvious exception is to this is that I think the work that you do I always get the title of the organization that you're on the board of wrong uh, Remind me the name. It's Private Investigations for the Missing. Yeah, I mean, that's so, like, that's so practical. And I really feel as well, like, just the way that uh, missing uh, and crawl space is is structured these days is, like, really responsible and is really good true crime content. But it kind of blows my mind how we're in this place. We're still in this place where we haven't, as consumers and creators really kind of quantified what our goals are. And I do, it just really made me think about it a lot in the wake of this Andrew news where like the police had explicitly said, you know, we have some, we've made some arrests, investigations are ongoing. There'll be no news for six to 12 months. And yet that was what brought so many new subscribers to the subreddit and increased the volume of conversation. And I just, I'm just really interested in that. And I just thought, oh, I, I bet I could have a good conversation with Lance and Tim about that. I see what you're saying. So instead of kind of sitting back, it's people who are kind of energized by the news that there might be an actual break in the case and um, sort of trying to figure out what that break could be. Yeah, that, but also that that is like a springboard for the discussion of theories. Um, you know, I do think that, on one hand, I sort of feel like that, that renewed energy, you know, more than ever, uh, the police want 
people who might not have come forward, who might know something to come forward. Like, that's good. You know, that, you know, and I, I share things on Twitter and what's not because, um, you know, the day there'd been those arrests, you know, I was, it was almost like, you know, my football team like winning in a cup final or something, you know, which obviously never happens because my football team's rubbish. But, you know, people were getting in touch to say, Oh, have you heard the news and, and and so on? So you know, I kind of feel it's a bit of my obligation to you know share stories, and that's my contribution to. Or if anyone did know anything, you know, now is the time to 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 come to come forward. But the subreddit is. Um, I feel like we there is still something that is happening where people just lose sight that this isn't a Harlan Coben novel. Like this isn't like a murder mystery. And I can't work out, you know, all these years after being interested in the genre, I still can't work out what that's about. I mean, I know that with you guys, like when you first started missing Moore and Murray, you were just bewitched by this case, weren't you? But really, am I correct in saying it started by you wanting to make a documentary about the people who were interested in it? Yeah, yeah. I was actually just going to say that. Hearing you talk about how you're working on wrapping your head around the community that looks into these cold cases. That's exactly where we did start. We had never seen anything like that when we started reading the back and forth and the theories on, you know, what happened to Mora, then connecting with James Renner and seeing all the people that either loved him or attacked him, hated him. And it was just fascinating. It was so fascinating that these people were so rabid about one disappearance. And I mean, for the most part, it's a very productive community. Um, The ones that stay behind the scenes are very responsible, but it's got the biggest front, like the biggest face of true crime. Like if you were to point to like a bad example and I, and I don't want to, I don't want to like insult anybody. I'm not trying to do that, but what you're saying is exactly why we started. There's so much out there and and does it do any good? Yeah, t- totally. I mean, I went to my first crime con um, last year. I wrote about it for uh, the Enemy, uh, which is like a big pop culture website in the UK. And uh, if anyone was interested in, so I, I kind of went and just just did a sort of fly on the wall piece about my thoughts about it. And I, when it, when it got published, it, there was a few people saying about how I was being really quite critical of like the true crime community, and I really wasn't what I was trying to do because I consider myself part of that. And actually, I came away with tons of admiration for people who, for, for a lot of people within that community, and there was a lot of good I think that came out of it. And I presume that's the case for other true crime cons, you know, that exist elsewhere. I mean, I the kind of you know the 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 tea towels with Ted Bundy's face on or whatever you know sat very uncomfortably with me. And there was a couple of quote unquote experts on panels where I thought you don't have a tremendous understanding of psychology, and this is like grift for you. But at the same time, I felt like the I met so many people there that were just really smart, empathetic people. And almost a little bit like when I am really into like, you know, comic books and sci-fi and stuff. And when I've been to cons like that, where I thought that these places are like community and home for people, you know, there were so many women there. There were so many people who I think would exist with, uh, under the LGBTQ banner. Um, there were uh, disabled people there. There were young people, old people, families, you know, it was a very inclusive, like diverse audience of attendees and that 
I thought that was amazing. And they, there wasn't that voyeurism. But, um, yeah, you know, at the same time, you know, coming by this Ted Bundy tea towel, that kind of sat very – that didn't sit very well with me at all. But it, it's more the case of, like, how – it's more the case of I don't understand what it is that makes us think that we can be sleuths. Like, it almost comes back to that kind of Joe Rogan thing of, like, well, we're not scientists. You know, we're not trained in those disciplines. So, therefore, why do we think that we have an understanding of that law enforcement don't? Do you think it's a lack of trust in law enforcement? I feel like this is seeping into almost every profession where uh... – you know, people can they think they can do things um, without having much training. Maybe it's just kind of part of like influencer culture too. And I'm not trying to blame things on a younger generation. You know, everyone grew up with the Matrix as as a thing. Um, you know, you learn something qu- quickly potentially. I mean, that's there's some deep truth to that. But I don't know, like, you know, do do the people who attack the Capitol do they think they're better politicians than Democrats? I guess. I think it probably comes back to, uh, I mean, I think in some instances they might actually be better politicians than Democrats. (laughs) Well, yeah, then now we're hitting something a little deeper, right? Yeah, yeah. Someone who's amateur doesn't doesn't necessarily mean they're bad at something. It's weird, you know, it's like when I think about how I got, uh, you know, how I got into, uh, you know, my real schooling, like, you know, predominantly, you know, I work predominantly as a music journalist and you know, how I got into music was Nirvana. And for me, it was like, I mean, I thought they were like amazing. You know, I'd never heard songs like that played like that. But there was also a reason why I got into Nirvana and I didn't get into, um, I don't know, like Joe Satriani or some kind of guitar virtuoso because I listened to Nirvana and went, oh, I can do that. And I don't think that was arrogance so much as... It was accessible. I mean, you know, I, I I can't. I mean, maybe I could. Who knows? You can check out my music on Spotify. But I I didn't think I could write a song as catchy as "Smells Like Teen Spirit." But I did think, oh, that is something I don't have to learn a lot of how to do, and that has kind of like influenced everything I've done in my career. Really, where I've gone, um, I could probably have a stab at that, you know, other than acting, as I was saying. But I don't know. I don't know whether it's more about a lack of trust in the sense that, you know, as we've seen in America, there is ton and, and increasingly in the UK, there is tons of distrust for institutions, you know, whether that's the police or as you were saying, like January 6th. And I don't know, I don't really know what the answer to it is, but it does feel a little bit like increasingly people want to take it upon themselves to, um, you know, kind of be what they don't think is there to serve them. I I personally blame Watergate. It all went downhill after Watergate. Everyone started to distrust the government. I I blame Nixon. Do you do you think that though? Do you do you well, not think it? I, I think I, I think in like uh, current times, if we're if we're speaking like that, but I mean, ultimately, there's always been a distrust to any sort of um, political body or any sort of authoritative uh, body that is um, giving you rules. Because I think intrinsically, we just want to be we want to have ownership of ourselves, um, and I'm totally for that. Uh, but I do think around the time of the uh, the Vietnam War, I feel like. Uh, the assassination of Kennedy, the Vietnam War, uh, the late 60s, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, like all of those. I think that there was a time where it, it became this boiling 
you know, pot and it started to boil over. And I feel like Watergate was like the exclamation point on that. And uh, a lot of organizations came out of that. A lot of organizations that distrust um, for rightfully so uh, political government systems. Yeah. It's kind of weird, man. You know, like I, I think you put, I think you're probably onto something there, but I also think a lot of it is about the, like the mechanisms of like how we voice our discontent as well. Um, you know, I increasingly, I don't really like to bash the media because I, you know, I, I am part of the media, but I increasingly read things that are reported and know that they are incorrect and they are influenced by um, the readership of uh, publications and almost what they want to hear rather than what the truth is or they almost that um there are things that can't be talked about because they don't fit the narrative and i think that largely i mean it almost comes back to that rogan thing whereas like i think rogan has been really irresponsible with some of the people he's invited along and he needs to realize that he isn't just making a podcast for like his, you know, broy mates anymore. You know, it's the most listened to podcast in the world and therefore there's some responsibility that comes with that. But I do think that increasingly people have flocked to him because they don't feel like they feel like they're almost the facade of what they're supposed to think. Um, they, they've almost kind of, seen through it which i which i guess in a way almost kind of makes me feel better about people than anything but well you know as far as the pandemic and the cdc and that thing i i think it's easy to look at the people who are making rules and say well you got it wrong you got it you got this wrong you got that wrong and now you've changed it to this so why are we supposed to believe this you know and and i get that it's an evolving virus. And I think the rules were evolving because people were trying to get it right. They were trying to stay ahead of it. And, you know, at some point it just, we, we lost. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think you could probably make a similar thing with true crime. Hopefully we don't lose, uh, but a, maybe a similar comparison here somewhere that uh, we're trying to stay ahead of it. We're trying to prevent uh, further damages. We're trying to do the right thing, trying to say the truth, be as ethical and moral as we can be at the time that we know, at the time that we're recording things, you know? Yeah, I think, though, as well, it's about being realistic about what our objectives are in the, you know, I love that podcast, um, True Crime Bullshit, although I'm a fair bit behind, but... You know, really, that is a podcast that isn't about trying to solve a crime, but it's about to it's about trying to fill in some of the blanks, and um, I think that's really admirable. And uh, Sarah Turney's Voices for Justice, which really is about giving a voice to the voiceless, I think they're things that we can do brilliantly. But I feel like that idea of sleuthdom is a strange conceit for someone to take away from a podcast. And I, I say that, I say that, you know, I'm obviously I'm true trained journalistically, but I say that as someone who, you know, has occasionally tried to put together theories and 
oh, well, maybe that means this or maybe that means this. But I just think those things come with so much bias, you know, that you, you can't take that out of a person. You know, we always view things about what's happened to us or how we see the world. And, and that's not what law enforcement is supposed to do. And therefore, that's what that's why they're the people who are there to solve crimes. And that's more what I've seen with Andrew's case in that you've got people saying, well, you know, when I was 14 years old, and, you know, I, I could say that, but when I was 14 years old, I mean, it's, it's almost 30 years ago, you know, like my experience at school was different. The town doesn't, you know, obviously we're from the same town, but it doesn't look the same. Everything with economics and politics was completely different then. And I just think that, that it's that kind of, it's probably an extreme word, but it's that kind of arrogance that we're the people who can Sherlock Holmes this shit that kind of winds me up. Yeah. Do you ever get organizations that contact you and, and say that, you know, they're they're taking on the case now, they're they're going to solve this and they want you to give them information. So they source information from you, but they're going to solve it. I mean, there was a few things uh, that I there was a few things that I found online that I like fed on to South Yorkshire Police and had a little bit of dialogue with them for a while. And I know that they followed a few things up. It always kind of went that way rather than the other way. Like I'm quite often kind of asked for comment on things that I've written about, but at the same time, it's more coming from the perspective of I know a lot about a thing rather than I might have a different take on a thing. Do do, do you guys? Oh yeah, I'm I'm, sp I'm specifically uh, thinking about one interview that we did recently that just drove us crazy. And we were trying to figure out how we were going to approach it and deliver it to the public. And we decided, fuck it, let's just take the gloves off. I mean, these, these people insert themselves into a, a situation that they know nothing about. And then they claim to have all of the facts or they claim to have no ego and they're only interested in the facts. And it, they're the most arrogant people we've ever interviewed. And in the same breath as saying, we're only interested in the facts, they'll say something completely inaccurate about the, uh, this particular cold case. And, and we have to correct them. And we say, well, that's not actually the, the situation. And then they'll say, listen, we're just being professional here. We're just being professional. We're only interested in the facts. And, and you get these people that come in and they're like snake oil uh, salesmen. They're, they're, they're charlatans. They're what's the carny barkers. Is that a, that thing? Um, they're, they're frauds, they're frauds and they take advantage of people. And they, they look at like GoFundMes. And, and a lot of families have GoFundMes for their missing loved ones. And then they'll come in. They'll, they probably, you know, uh, focus it down to the ones that have been uh, cold for like 10 plus years. So now they, they know that the family's desperate. And then they've got a few thousand dollars in a GoFundMe and a good community behind them. And they feel like that's the momentum and the family accepts people like that into their lives and they take advantage of it. It's really disgusting. And yeah. I mean, that's some, uh, that's some, that's some real enterprising shithousery, that is. Do you have that phrase in the state, shithousery? No, but we do now. I, actually, to be honest, I've used it a little bit incorrectly. Shithousery is slightly, make sure you press the explicit button when you publish this. Um, when, uh, yeah, shithousery, yeah, it's probably a bit, you would call shithousery, it's quite often a term that's used in sports for someone who does something that, it's used in football quite a lot, where it's almost like 
God, I feel like I need to get Urban Dictionary up to sort, sure. of, like get, to sort of say this. Get Urban Di- Can you get Urban Dictionary up your ends? It says, chiefly British term for underhanded conduct or gamesmanship in a sport with the intention of gaining an advantage. Yeah, no, that's that's spot on. I'm pleased that we checked that. But it's it's almost sort of quite heroic. Um, there's I think there's a Twitter account called Foot, Football Shithousery. Um, you know, it's some it's it's uh, goalkeepers who kind of laugh when someone misses a penalty, for example. Um, you know, it just kind of transcends that kind of sporting conduct. But so actually, really, what you're saying, Lance, is these people are just cretins, really, because that's an appalling way to. A support an appalling way to conduct yourself. Yeah, I feel like I need to listen to that episode and I need to know who these people are because that is something that I'm. You'll, you're, well, you'll lose I your th- mind. You'll I think listen. You'll, you'll know when you, when yeah. you right when you hear it too. Do, I mean, do you do you guys lose your temper? Uh, I mean, there was some some uh, I guess you could say anxiety or um, maybe some blood pumping a little bit during the interview but maybe it's afterwards I think for me that I kind of sinks in so when they came to so did you source the interview from did you go to them or did they come to you it was based on I believe a Google alert for this particular case and it was because they were getting a lot of press we reached out to them because they were getting this press because they decided that they were going to be involved with the case. And we were like, huh, I wonder what they know. I wonder on what level they're, they're going to be involved and are they legit? And we kind of went in. Oh yeah. And then there was this other individual that they're associated with. And we're like, okay, this, these people are, these people are uh, snake oil as well. So we, we right. went into it thinking that it would be tense and, and, uh, and sort of like, just I don't awkward, know, I think awkward. Well, yeah. The, the potential but, for awkwardness. Yeah, but it went so far and beyond our expectations. Oh, God, God. I mean, it's a weird one, though. Like, uh, you know, I interviewed... um, I I do this podcast called Shame. That's my plug. Season one just wrapped up recently, and it's about the emotion, shame, whether that's, you know, kind of what that does to us and what purpose it serves. And a lot of it's about, like, online shaming and cancel culture and what's not, but... You know, broadly spoken to people who, who grew up in religious households or people who've had their intimate photos shared on the internet. So it covers the whole gamut, really. It sticked into true crime a little bit. I interviewed Julie Murray. Um, I interviewed Amanda Knox. And specifically with Amanda, who I've kind of got to know quite well, really, out of doing that interview, there was so much that was uh, about almost like the prejudice or the the bias in true crime reporting in the sense of almost what I was saying of like, well, this person did this or this person is this because this is how I see the world. So, you know, with Amanda, that meant that she obviously did this because she was a teenage girl who had a very natural interest in boys or she obviously did this because she uh, laughed at some point during the trial that obviously means this and it's that with true crime reporting that winds me up so much of trying to detangle our own prejudices from the way that we view events and that's such a big thing i think with Murray murray as well in that you know we try to put us put ourselves and i i'm i'm not uh, i'm not innocent at all then this interview with julie murray i i said this thing about i think it was on your show and it was the first time I'd ever heard that Maura was listening to that new Radicals song. Is it You Get What You Give? 
and how that was a song that she was listening to. And because of having an interest in like psychology and, you know, knowing a fair bit about music, that really has influenced how I see the story of Maura Murray more than any fact, really, in that I just think if you're listening to that song in what, what year is more, is it 2004? And you're, you know, you're driving away, like you're not driving away anguished, you're driving away feeling pretty good about things. And that's a real presumption, you know, like that, that obviously should, you know, if more story ever comes to trial, that's something that should never be thought of or discussed because it's my own perception of things. But when it's more negative than that, in the, oh, well, you know, there's an awful lot of people who comment on true crime cases that I think it says more about how they see the world than actually the case itself. Um, yeah, I would agree but, with that. But I'm super interested in the, the, nefarious industries that have arisen around the genre, like the idea of someone targeting vulnerable people. I mean, that's no difference from mediums, is it not? Yeah, there's definitely a parallel there. You mentioned the word grift earlier. Um, I do think that's something that families of missing people and, and murdered loved ones really have to be careful in this day and age. And this isn't necessarily something that is obvious when when you meet these people. This is something that can unfurl over the course of many years. But make no mistake, these people are out there and they are watching the case and consuming and following your every word. Yeah, no, absolutely. Can we uh, can we talk about Renner? Sure. Sure. So uh, I like James Renner. I need to say this from the off. Um, he unfollowed me on Twitter the other day, so he might not like me. But this interview I did with Julie Murray for Shane... Um, I think he took it as quite a coded attack on him when really it was supposed to be about... Really, it was supposed to be about Julie talking about how the reporting of her sister's disappearance had made... How it had affected her family and how she, as someone who sees herself as the keeper of Maura's flame and has to almost defend more in her absence, how that had kind of made her feel. And I just, I was just thinking because Renner is so, I don't know, he's so tied with what you guys do really, for better or for worse, I don't know how you guys feel about that, but you know, that's how I first came to hear about him and his work. Like, I don't know, I just think, I think what James Renner does is, is, is largely good. I think his podcast series are really good. But I think it's that thing of like, if you are, Almost like if you set yourself up as the voice of a case and you almost kind of become a bigger player in that case than most other people within that case, then you do have to see how the way that you would report something would affect other people. Um, I think that the stuff that James has shared about Bill Roush, for example, is really interesting and has made me think about what's going on with Maura a lot. And, you know, it may well be that there is no connection there, but it's certainly, I think, an appropriate activity for a journalist to be doing. And I think that he's reported on those things with, you know, real integrity and principles. At the same time, I just think you have to see when you would tease a reveal about something to do with Maura's case, or a breaking news or a coming soon 
like those things i do think you have to think about how um loved ones of victims or the people who are um, personally invested in the case how that would make them feel so you know if you listen to this james just want to say i love you i wanted to clarify what i was trying to say a little bit and we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors thanks to our sponsors and now we're back to the program yeah, it was well, well said, you know, and I think uh, even James will be one of the first people to raise his hand if the general question of sometimes, you know, does your ego get in the way of what you do? I think he understands it sometimes it does for him. You know, journalism is a very ego driven profession, uh, especially if you're breaking news, if you're into that type of journalism where you're getting the scoop, that's that you you have to almost put aside other people's code, moral code, or, and not think about families and, and get the scoop for your own personal advancement. Yeah, I'm thinking, I've been thinking about this a lot though recently about almost like the difference between journalism and activism and about how they're sort of quite uneasy bedfellows. And I think that some of my frustration with like modern media is when it has veered more towards activism than journalism. Um, but at the same time, I don't think there is a completely objective way of reporting. I just think we have to do our very best and consider that, and consider tone. I think tone's super important, and our own prejudices, how they're not projected on the things that we report on and the things that we write about. I mean, you constantly hear people talking about how you know journalists should just report on the facts, which is all well and good. But I don't, I just don't think that's how we see the world. Like you know, we're not Autobots that see things in such a dispassionate way but i do think it's kind of interesting how how we report on this stuff with how we report on this stuff with almost without reporting on it in a way that, that we're reporting something that we would like to hear i think that's where the problem arises more than anything that's an interesting way to put it yeah i'm not actually sure i, I was trying to kind of phrase it in the right way and i'm not actually sure i totally have said it how i mean really but i think uh I think in in and amongst everything I've said, you could probably get the gist of what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And it's uh, interesting because I I haven't I was having those similar thoughts. I just didn't verbalize it the way you just did, and it really it clicked, you know. Yeah, totally. It just comes back to that thing as well, though, of like why you know why are we doing this stuff? You know, like, are we doing this to you know? I say I think the thing we say James, for example, and the other thing I've got to say about James is that as as storytellers go, as people, his philosophy of crime series was amazing. Like, it was so brilliant. He is such an amazing storyteller. Like, he's such an amazing raconteur. You know, I've enjoyed his his novels, you know, where you know that it's been presented as fiction. And But you have to ask yourself, why, why are you doing this? Are you doing this in the pursuit of truth? Or are you doing this to create a brand? And I, and that almost comes back to grift, really. You know, and you know, here I am, like talking. I mean, I'm talking to you guys because I really like you guys, and I was a fun when I ever that with you. But I also want people to listen to my podcast and check out my spook Substack, and you know, that's uh, part of the industry that we're in. But but is it not okay? Is it not okay to to go after the truth and your brand as well? Yeah, I think I think it's fine, but I think it's when the seesaw tilts in the direction of this being about brand building. I think that with Mora, for example, the name Mora Murray 
should be much better known than James Renner. And I think it always has been, but I think that sometimes it's tipped a little bit in one direction. Um, and I'm very <laughs> conscious of that with Andrew, for example. Like, I don't want people to ever think that Andrew Gosden is James McMahon's case. You know, I want them to um, know about Andrew's story and then realise that I'm probably the most authoritative voice on that case within media, but not that they see my name as synonymous with Andrew, because I think that does a detriment to really what we're trying to do here. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, you're saying more like um, you'd, you'd like for people to use you as a resource to get the information, to have the correct, accurate information on that, on that case. And you've done the work because you want the correct information out there. So I, I, yeah, it totally, it makes total sense. And you said that you uh, check in with the family. You said you call the, the dad um, once in a while to, to check in to see how they're doing and how are they doing? I think that at the moment they, I think understandably it stirred up a lot of feelings for the family um you know it's a really i mean you know from what the police have reported you know words like human trafficking and child pornography i mean that they're not phrases that lend themselves to restful sleep are they um so there's a lot of well what does that mean and obviously they're gonna have to wait to find out more uh you know my heart really bleeds for them on that and i don't know whether they feel like some answers are coming and therefore and therefore that can lead to some sort of resolution and with resolution comes healing and I, I don't know whether they're feeling like that so I can only kind of assume but I mean the thing I don't think he would mind me saying this but I think the thing with Andrew's dad Kevin is that when I went to first interview him which is probably about four years ago now and he lives on like the other side to Doncaster from Doncaster, which is the town I grew up in. He lives on the the other side of the town, and you drive down the street at the address that he gave me. And I remember my dad. I, I don't drive. My dad was dropping me off, and I remember my dad being like, "What house is it?" And then me being like, "Well, you know, it's the one with the missing Andrew Gosden poster in the window." And you know, kind of getting to the door, and I'd woken him up from being asleep, and this was like the middle of the day, and. You know, it's very hard that the man that I was speaking to who had white hair and you know, he's not that old, you know, I think he's probably approaching sixty, but you know, he had white hair, like snow white hair, but the pictures of him and his family on the mantelpiece, you know, he he looks thirty years younger. So almost kind of what it's done to him, you can kind of see it on his face really. And I don't know, you know, when I've written about him, like I've tried to, I've tried to kind of get that across, you know, almost like the impact of what an experience like this does to a person without it having happened to myself. So I don't know, really. I don't think there's just, I just don't think there's any, there's just nothing good about anything like this happening to a person, is there? No, absolutely not. Um, I can't even imagine the uh, twists and turns that, um, that it must go through that, that, your thoughts must take uh, in your head and your family. I think it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, 
I'm not like a spiritual person in like the traditional sense, you know, and if I was going to get on my soapbox, I could rant and rave about, you know, the the problems that I feel like have plagued the world because of religion, but he is very religious and I can, there's no part of me that would want to knock religion knowing the comfort that it's given him and his family. Like I can't imagine what it would be like without, having something bigger to believe in. I don't really, I don't really like that. Uh, I don't really like, you know, when people talk about imaginary people in the sky, mm. I probably believe that, that they are imaginary people in the sky, but I don't really like kind of ramming that in the faces of people who take some comfort from it, you know? Yeah, that's uh, again, well said. I think um, if you're dealing with this, and your, your family is dealing with something like this, this tragedy, uh, have all the religion you want, like what, whatever it takes to get you from waking up in the morning to going to bed at night. However, you know, you can get through those hours. Sure. Believe in whatever you want. Like that's not anyone's place to tell you otherwise, just because they need to show their you know perspective. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, I love the fact that you still have Bigfoot uh, behind you, Tim. <laughs> with, with, with that, was that just for this call or is that lived He's there never since taken last time? <laughs> oh, I love that. I have, a, I have a bunch of virtual backgrounds and I think this was this one was left uh, from the last chat we had yeah, uh, month, yeah. months ago. Yeah. I really need to uh I really need to get back on the Bigfoot trail. I did a I made a documentary for Radio 4 just before Christmas that was about I mean this will literally mean nothing to two men from the New England area, but uh, there's a TV show in the UK, or there was a TV show in the UK called Bullseye, which was a quiz show that I watched when I was a kid, and it was like a combination of uh, general knowledge and darts. Do you know, you get darts in the States, right? Oh, yeah, definitely darts. Um, but, you know, darts was really intrinsic to, like, kind of British working-class culture, and this show, it ran from, I think it was 83 to... 94 maybe so i watched it all the way from you know all the way through my childhood and watched it at my nana's house and you know she was a working class woman from oldham in lancashire and made this documentary that was really about me uh rediscovering bullseye during a period of poor mental health i'd had and also what that show could tell us about uh, the, the shifting sounds of the british working class and uh, it went down pretty well. It's called Look at What You Could Have Won. Some BBC Sounds, if anyone wants to listen to that, still exists up there for people to listen to retroactively. But I really, 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 really want them, or someone else, if anyone is is, is offering, uh, to let me make a documentary about Bigfoot. Uh, and funnily enough, your man who I met via Chloe from True Crime Twins... Uh, and he works with you guys. Remind me of his name? Greg Overacker? That's it. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So he, oh, yeah, cool. he wrote an article. So he's a big... Yeah, I, I did this article for this entertainment website called Fandom. I sometimes write about, very silly, about if there were any parallels, and there aren't, spoiler, uh, between Boba Fett in the book of Boba Fett uh, and actually being a bounty hunter. And I thought he was a dude, and he has regularly reached out to me about Bigfoot saying, Hey, I'm, I mean, I'm going to do an accent now. Like, Hey dude, why don't me and you go into the forest and look for Bigfoot? 
and uh, I'm really into that. I really, I really want someone to ma- let me make it. Overacker. I thought so. Yeah, I really, really want uh, someone to let me and Greg make a documentary about uh, looking for Bigfoot. So, yeah, watch this space. Maybe this is this is probably the best idea I've heard <laughs> aside from Pan Man Two all year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. It, it was weird though. Like, um, I mean, my main takeaway from my conversation with Greg, I did it quite late at night because just the time difference, and I remember going to bed just thinking, God. I'm really pleased I'm not a bounty hunter because uh, it sounds hard going. He was saying about how, you know, I've been to States a few times on work, but, you know, if I've been to, like, Vegas, like, I've been to, like, the Strip, or if I've been to, like, LA, I've been to, you know, the Sunset Strip or whatever. But he was basically saying how his knowledge of all America's major cities were, like, the scuzzy parts, you know, so... If you know, if anyone said to him, "Have you been to Boston or or whatever?" It was like the places that the places that aren't in the tourist guide. Uh, and I was thinking, yeah, no, that's that's not the life that I would want, really. But then when he followed it up with, "Oh, I'm actually a big Bigfoot nerd," I thought that was I thought that was pretty wild. We need to unlayer this idea and and really hone in on the uh the diamond that it is it's uh, a <laughs> phenomenal it's, it's, idea I, yeah this could be a, this could be a cruel space uh spook media collaboration uh, as as productions go yeah no let's let's kick let's kick that around off air maybe yes and then um Sounds for good. anyone listening right now who agrees like please leave us a message about uh, your interest level in watching a documentary featuring james mcmahon and Craig Overacker looking for Bigfoot. It, yeah, it's brilliant. No. It's I brilliant, mean, mate. You, oh, like that. You guys have got some. You guys have got some experiences of kind of gonzoy journalism, though, right? Like, sure, what was the time? What was the time that you went up into the mountains with uh, looking for Mora? Well, yeah, we were uh, heading to a uh, a coordinate that w- had been emailed. I don't know that anyone really thought we were going to find Mora being so far up the mountain, just like logistically not really being reasonable to uh, assume that, um, I don't know, some- someone brought Mora there. Maybe Mora could have brought herself there, but it just seemed unlikely. It was sort of just a cross-off this uh, loose end. But yes, I guess you, you could call that gonzo journalism. I mean, we've definitely done some of that uh, kind of thing. Sure. Did, did, we... did, did something not, did something weird happen when you were there though? Um, many things. Yeah. Yeah. I think before we went, I think a couple of years before we um, get kind of spooked out. I think that might be what you're referencing. Did you ever find out who had sent the coordinate? No, no. No. Yeah. You know, back in the day when uh, those were sent to James, James Renner, uh, he forwarded them to us. And because he's in another state, not close to the White Mountains where the, these coordinates were, he didn't really grab, like, get the, uh, like, the distance. Like, because we're around Boston, you know, we're just closer. He's like, do you guys want to, tr- you know, maybe try to check those out? And we're like, dude, it's still like two and a half hours away and it's the winter. Like, <laughs> it's, it's really tough. I think there are so many scumbags who are involved in Mora's story. And I do think that some of the times that it's come to James's doorstep is so wrong. And I do think, you know, like I was 
I mean, it was only the mildest of criticisms of James, you know, from what we were talking about before. Like, I'm a fan of what he does, but I do think that that kind of behaviour just needs condemning voraciously. And actually, I, and actually, I have to say, as fond as I am of Julie and as much as I sympathise with her plight, I am quite surprised that there hasn't been more condemnation for that kind of activity. Because whilst I've kind of argued that it's important to report about things with the correct tone and with the correct grace of how this will affect people who are bound by love and by biology to a missing person, that's just, it, it, I mean, it's just, it's just wrong. Um, where did you get the idea to do uh, shame? Where did I get the idea to do shame? So I have some incidents from my childhood where I was, um, I mean, I was a child, so it wasn't of my doing, but I was kind of at the epicenter of some events that were pretty, that had a lot of shame to them. You know, I was almost like in the blast radius. Um, things that involved relatives of mine where they had been shamed and because I was a child that was around them, I therefore, uh, that kind of came back on me. And I would say, I mean, I've talked on this podcast before about me and my obsessive compulsive disorder. And I think a lot of that is linked to those experiences in my life. Uh, and also I, I edited a music magazine for years and years and years. And I had a, a, a pretty brutal incident of dogpiling on the internet uh, after I'd made uh, what might have been a mistake, what what, what pro- might not have been a mistake or whatever it, in, in that job, which had a really like significant effect on me. And I think that podcast series was me almost trying to work it out in real time. Um, kind of, I do think we're sort of in an incredibly shrill time right now where, I don't know, the kind of the mob rules really. And podcast was almost a little bit like a kind of live experiment really in the sense that I wanted to try to connect with other people who'd had similar experiences like that or people like John Ronson who I interviewed on the last episode of the season one uh, who knows a lot about shame and kind of people's motivations and the history of shame in to try and kind of work out how I how I felt about it all really and I have to say it kind of helped really like I, I found a lot of commonalities I mean you know obviously like Amanda Knox's story for example is far more extreme than some people being mean to me for you know a couple of days on the internet but it, it helped me um it helped me understand what happened to me and gave me a little bit of comfort i think very good think. show very uh good concept and love the fact that it's like almost therapy for you yeah no no absolutely is i mean there's a big thing with ocd where you like the treatment for it is very it isn't really about exploring like the substance of your obsessions and fears and ruminations like it's very much about trying to change the cognitive thought process so you know for me i'm not sure i totally explained that about my childhood so well actually but it really was that thing of like some some shitty things happened to people close to me and because i was in the blast radius i took a lot of that on and um they form my they formed like the sort of mental anguish that i've taken into adulthood 
that's a bit, that's a better way of explaining it. The second bite of the cherry, and whilst it's that thing of like other with a lot of other mental illnesses, you would you would talk about the things that happened to you, and you try and make sense of them. With OCD, you don't really do that. You try and you try to change the way that you think generally, rather than the way you, rather than trying to find any sort of like truth in trauma. Um, it's a thing, you know, it's it, it's really, that's the standard way of like looking at the treatment of OCD with this thing called exposures, which is the, the things that you are scared about, you put yourself close to them and live with discomfort. So for me, you know, I'm, a, I, I'm obsessed with the idea of being shamed. So actually doing a podcast about shame was an exposure. But I just think that sometimes, you know, when it happened to me on the internet, I would go into Tesco's or Tesco's is, is a supermarket in the UK. I'd go into Tesco's to like, you know, buy, I don't know, like some beer or some mashed potato or whatever. And I'd be stood there in the supermarket thinking everyone knows about me. Everyone can see like almost like I'm stained, you know, and reconnecting with other people. There's a thing that John Ronson says about how, the cure for empathy is, um, I think he actually paraphrased it from someone else, but how the cure for shame is empathy. And I found that being around other people who'd had that experience and learning from them really did make me feel good, which is one of the reasons why the podcast exists, really, that other people might be able to take that from it. Now, what about people like uh, Tim and I? We're not afraid of anything. We're, we're cold-hearted SOBs. What, what, what advice do you have for people who aren't afraid of anything? I mean, I, is that is that true though? No, no, I'm I'm terrified of most things. Yeah, I mean, you know, just applying my cold psychology to the two of you. I mean, I mean, I do feel like Lance, you wear your heart on your sleeve, and you know, whilst Tim is maybe the slightly more, I don't know, sort of, um, and the slightly almost like the slightly more detached of the two voices. I do feel like. Tim's got some fire in his belly as well. You know, oh, there's like, some fire. Yeah, I got some yeah, fire. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, you know, fear's like good, isn't it? Like fear is the thing that stops us from making terrible mistakes. It's the thing that almost sort of like keeps us in line and keeps us alive. But with OCD, it can become excessive. Um, you know, the pandemic, for example, I think one of the reasons why I may be a little bit moderate on my views about things like lockdowns and... Um, you know, some of the restrictions that came into place during the height of COVID is that I know how those things can affect people with OCD. Um, you know, OCD is about accepting risk. So therefore being told that if you step outside your front door, like you might drop dead, like it's really bad for people with OCD. Like we have to try to kind of find a moderate, uh, we have to we have to find some moderation, you know. And we don't live in a world with a lot of moderation right now, so it can be tricksy. Isn't it interesting that we started the conversation on the topic of fear, and we're kind of coming full circle? Only we're defining fear, we're putting fear in a different light. Yeah, I mean, I think all of my stuff really is in like the things I'm interested in and things I write about and talk about. It all really kind of comes down to like the same sort of central tenant, really, which is how people relate to each other, how people interact with each other, you know, whether that is, you know, the, when I've written about true crime or um, even my kind of music journalism um, and shame, obviously. 
it is about the dynamics between people. I think that's like, ultimately, I think everything's boring other than people, like everything, like sport, music, politics. It's all about people and psychology and how we relate to each other and how we can kind of try and create something better amongst us all. I love it. And you started the conversation by saying um, that we at this time don't have sensible people having sensible conversations. But I think we just proved that I think we're somewhat sensible people having a uh, pretty sensible conversation right now. I think I think that's a really good uh, I think that's a really good place to leave it. And I can go have the uh, I can go eat the pie that I can smell wafting in from my kitchen, wafting from my kitchen. (laughs) 